I want to talk tonight about practice as a spiritual journey, to <laughs> acknowledge the fact that we all are here together on a path. And it's a path of cultivation, it's a path of purification. By cultivation, I mean that we are actively cultivating beautiful qualities of mind and heart, cultivating wisdom, cultivating compassion, equanimity, etc. And purification means that we are also actively working with the obstacles to those beautiful qualities of heart and mind, to work with, to recognize, to free ourselves from greed, hatred, and delusion in all its different forms. So there's really a sense of um, progression or cultivation on this path. It's, it's known as the path of purification, path of cultivation. But sometimes it can be hard to recognize a path or a direction in what's happening to us or with us or for us. Um, I know certainly when I began uh, this practice, I had no clue. Well, I should say when I left Australia which was in the early 1980s, I thought I was going to India for six months, and I would have a few adventures, and I would come home and resume my life. Well, I haven't really been back since. I mean, I've been back, but I never, never went back to live. And what, 25 years? I lose track now, 29 years later. Um, that life just ended. And through my experience in India, contacting uh, Buddhism, beginning to meditate, my whole life direction shifted. And I had no clue when I set out that that was what was about to happen. I don't know whether I would have signed up for it, being who I was then. Now I'm so grateful that it happened. I'm so um, appreciative of the changes that have taken place since that time. But I didn't have any idea, step by step, as I took on that journey, where I would end up. But here I am today. And in a smaller sense, this retreat is a journey. We've all set out on a journey together, a journey of exploration, of cultivation. And in the same way, you don't know where you'll end up. And we all hope you make it to the end of the retreat, but that's about as much as we know, what state you'll be in, what experiences you will have, you will have had. We can't tell you, and I think it's just as well we can't. It's not as simple as, you know, those flight checks. You get on the plane and they say, this plane is headed to Boston. If you don't want to go to Boston, you should get off. You're just here. You've signed up, and we'll see where we end up. And it's natural that because it's a step into the unknown that we can have questions about this. Am I going in the right direction? You know, I think Carol talked about this last night. What, did I really sign up for this? Am, am I getting what I thought I came here for? to really put that again in the don't know category. We can't know where this journey is going to take us. It will take you somewhere unexpected. I know that. I've seen it for myself in every retreat I've been on. No matter how much I try not to expect anything, there's still un I still find myself surprised by what ends up happening on retreat. But I've been thinking about this theme of journey and um, path, cultivation for a number of days. And as often happens, someone sent me an email, you know, one of those funny emails, and I found something that was suitable, I thought, for this talk. So it was one of the a list of what they call the Darwin Awards. 
And, you know, that's that um, award they give out every year. It's a little, well, um, <laughs> of the people that remove themselves from the gene pool by doing something so stupid they kill themselves. I'm not going to tell you the one that won, because it was a little gruesome. They often are. But under it, they had a list of other ones that I, I don't know why they included them. They were kind of strange things that happened. But here's one that was an honorary mention in the Darwin Awards. After stopping for drinks at an illegal bar, a Zimbabwean bus driver found that the 20 mental patients he was supposed to be transporting from Harare to Bulawayo had escaped. Not wanting to admit his incompetence, the driver went to a nearby bus stop and offered everyone there waiting a free ride. (laughs) He then delivered the passengers to the mental hospital telling the staff that the patients were very excitable and and prone to bizarre fantasies. The deception wasn't discovered for three days. So somehow, you know, there's a way in which mental, uh, mental, retreats can seem a bit like a hospital, but I'm hoping that the stories you're telling in uh, the, the interviews aren't about, you know, I really shouldn't be here, I was meant to be going to Boston or somewhere. Sometimes we don't know where we're going to end up, hopefully a little more together than this instance. But I want to talk about this um, aspect of being on a journey and the qualities that are helpful for us as we um, are on this path. It's a theme that the Buddha talked about a lot. Use the metaphor of journey, of travel, of path, of cultivation. And in fact, one of the central teachings that I'm going to focus this talk about is actually called a path. It's the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's uh, the heart of this amazing teaching that the Buddha gave us, his first discourse, the Four Noble Truths, this powerful teaching that points directly to the fact that there is suffering in life and shows us the cause of suffering, which is clinging, grasping, says there's a way out of suffering. The way out of suffering is this Eightfold Path. And as I say, I'll go into that a bit later. But many other metaphors and imagery of path in Buddhist teachings. There's that famous um, Zen set of imagery called the Ten Ox Herding Pictures, where these very simple images with this very pithy story about being in search of the ox. And the ox is a metaphor for enlightenment or Buddha nature or the enlightened mind. And it First, we're just wandering around lost and confused. Then we see some signs of the ox, and then we grab a hold of the ox, and we try to tame the ox, and the ox is very unruly. And then finally, this, this transformation happens where there's a, a complete merging and transcendence of, of the whole ox. The ox just disappears. This sense of journey, of exploration, is, is so central. And of course, it's not just in Buddhism. It's archetypal. I was also reading a little bit about Joseph Campbell, and he, he, he distilled what he called the monomyth, which is the hero's journey. He said when he looked at all of the different um, folk tales and myths and archetypes from cultures all over the world, there was this central theme of the hero, or I hope the heroine's journey, I'll use just the hero to refer to both, that we're, we, this is the central archetype of a life's journey, And when I looked at the list of things that were um, emblematic of the hero's journey, it's so similar to what we're doing here. We have to step out from the known, leave behind our comforts, our safety zone, 
and come into the unknown, set out on this journey. There are obstacles, enormous obstacles, but these obstacles are an important part of the learning that has to happen, of the strength that needs to develop. We're often given gifts, physical gifts, actual gifts, spiritual gifts, insights. And then we're transformed. We have to be open to being changed. And that's the essence of what we're doing here, is, is this transformation of our hearts and minds, this willingness to shift, to let go of old habit patterns, old ways of being, old reactions and reactivity. And then out of that transformation, we return home with blessings that we can bestow on ourselves and others. And it was really quite poignant to me to feel how allied this work is with that journey and how you are all expressing that willingness to step out into the unknown, into this process of transformation, to face these obstacles, to be willing to change, to grow, and to deepen. It's quite a journey that we're on together. This archetype also describes the life of the Buddha. It was actually one of the stories that Joseph Campbell um, delved into as he developed this theory, this understanding of the monomyth, the hero's journey. Many of you know this story of the Buddha's life, how he was born into a wealthy family, some say the son of a king, so he was a prince, but we don't know that for sure, but he was definitely born into uh, the, the family of the leader of a clan or a tribe into some degree of wealth and comfort and grew up being trained as a warrior and living a life of luxury, being basically given everything you could have in that day and age. In fact, his father deliberately protected him from the difficulties of life, from old age, sickness, and death, because he didn't want his son to be challenged by those experiences. But of course, it's not possible to hide away from old age, sickness, and death. And when the Buddha, to be realized that this was the fate of all human beings, of all beings, um, he was motivated to try to find an end to suffering, an end to illness, an end to death. And so he set out on his quest for enlightenment, went through huge hardships. The practices of the time involved a great deal of asceticism. So he starved himself, he didn't bathe, he wore rags, he often didn't lie down or sit down. He did all of these very austere practices, these obstacles, these challenges. And then realized that that wasn't doing it. That as much as he was more, the idea was if you mortified the body enough, the soul, the Atman, would, would fly free and transcend everything. And he saw it wasn't happening. He was just suffering a lot, and he wasn't finding freedom. So he took some food and went and sat under the Bodhi tree, that famous night of his enlightenment, and went through this whole process of um, understanding and awakening and began to teach after that and share his wisdom. This journey of the Buddha's life is ex especially alive for me right now because the last, um, just a couple of months ago, November and December, my husband and I, Guy, and I finally went on a journey we've been wanting to do for many years. We went on a Buddhist pilgrimage. So we went to India and uh, did a tour of the holy sites, the sites associated with the Buddha's life and teachings. And it was quite an amazing experience. 
we actually had our journey arranged by a very small travel agency that specializes in pilgrimages. So they, they um, created an itinerary for us. They booked us a car and driver. And I'd never done a trip like that before. I'd never done any kind of trip where I, was, where I had an itinerary. I've always been a very free-form kind of traveler, off on my own doing things. And it was interesting to really feel being on a journey, being on a pilgrimage, to feel that we were pilgrims. And we, I was tapping into something, again, very archetypal, to be on a pilgrimage to these powerful sites of the Buddha's life and to feel the deepening that happened as we let ourselves enter into that world. And we joined a, a whole panoply of pilgrims. Everywhere we went were other pilgrims, and we were pilgrims together sharing these experiences. It's quite amazing, quite a powerful thing. And at the time, we were also reading a lot of books about the Buddha's life. We had books on the pilgrimage sites, and um, we were listening to Stephen Batchelor tell the story of the Buddha's life, and also reading an amazing book called, um, uh, oh, now I forget, Discovery, what was it called? Discovering the Buddha's Life, something like that. It was a, a story about how Buddhism was basically lost in India. From about the 13th century, it was wiped out completely. And by the 17th or 18th century, completely gone from the face of India. All of the sites, the great stupas and palaces had crumbled into ruins. They were covered with dirt and dust and, and vines. And the local people had no idea. And so when Westerners started coming, the French and um, English explorers, archaeologists, and started uncovering these ruins, they had no clue what they were um, seeing. They didn't see, realize it had any connection with the religions of Thailand or Sri Lanka or Burma. They thought the Buddha maybe was an African because he had the statues often showed curly hair or thought he was from Europe. I mean, sorry, from Egypt. It was only as time grew on and they pieced together the language and the different inscriptions that they realized that this was Buddhism. This was the story of the life of Gautama Buddha, who existed around 500 BCE. So it was just amazing to immerse ourselves into that world. And as Guy said, to feel that uh, King Bimbisara and Ananda, the Buddha's disciples, and uh, Bimbisara was a benefactor, were more real to us than Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi and all the politics of America. We just got immersed and lost in that world and felt that we were on a journey that was changing us, and it really did. Um, we began our pilgrimage in Patna, which, if you know India, is um, not memorable for any reason as, apart from a place to start your pilgrimage from. It's a big, noisy Indian city, but it has a museum that has a supposed actual relic of the Buddha. There's a, a, a special room you have to pay extra to go in, and in that room is a spotlight on a tiny little marble urn, just a few inches across. And it was supposedly one of the eight original relics that were dispersed after the cremation of the Buddha's body, after his death. And they, there's a lot of research that has gone on to say that this was one, because there's a lot of fake relics out there, that this was one of the real ones. Now, I'm not a big faith type. You know, I didn't grow up in a Buddhist culture. It's not my temperament. But there was something pretty powerful about standing in a room, being that close to 
something that might have been, probably was, part of the Buddha, part of that person who started this whole chain of events of teaching and practice that spread all over the world and is touching all of us here today. So I really felt the power of that. And then as we went on to the different places connected with his life, another one we loved was uh, Rajgir, where Vulture's Peak is set. Um, Vulture's Peak is this uh, edge of a mountain, edge of a hill really, um, these five hills uh, outside of this tiny town of Rajgir. And the Buddha lit, spent much time there. It was one of his favorite spots for practice. Gave a few famous discourses. And you have to walk a long trail up to get there. I mean, it's not onerous or anything, but you got a sense of living, what, how, living how they lived back in that time living out in nature. And as you go up the trail, you pass two caves, Ananda's cave and Sariputta's cave, two of the Buddha's famous disciples. When you hear these word cave and you know that people lived and practiced there, I mean, these are just little holes in the ground or a little overhanging. You can, can't stand up in most of them. You get a sense of the sense of renunciation, intention, purity of practice that um, filled these people's lives. And again, just inspiring to see, even today, we can uphold those values. We can feel that purity coming through as we're here practicing. Now, I know the rooms are very simple, but they're not caves. You know, you have a sink and a light and hot water, and we're very comfortable here. But there's a great degree of renunciation that you've all embarked on in being here. It's a pretty simple room. It's a bed and a sink and a rod for your clothes. That's all there is. To see how that value of simplicity, of renunciation, really does support practice. It really does help with the letting go, help with the coming back to the present because there's not so much distraction. (coughs) So even as relatively comfortable as we are here, to really acknowledge this practice of renunciation that you've all undertaken, to take what's given as far as the food. It's great food, but there's no menu. You can't choose when to eat. It's a pretty set, set of fare. Um, it's vegetarian. It's, it's got just the basics covered. We let go of all of our entertainments. To feel at the connection with the lineage, Anytime you might feel a little resistant to that, you know, you're missing reading your book at night or the New York Times or checking your email, sense into this fact that you're walking in the steps of these amazing forefathers and mothers who walked this path before us, living lives of simplicity and renunciation because of the power that it gave to the practice, the steadiness it gives to the mind. Of course, one of the powerful sites of pilgrimage is Bodhgaya, where the Buddha became enlightened. Now there's a beautiful temple there. The Mahabodhi Temple was built sometime after the Buddha's death, but fell into ruin, was completely decrepit um, when it was sort of rehabilitated, had been taken over by local Hindu people, and they had made it their shrine, so there's been quite a bit of... Um, Difficulty in really making it uh, a Buddhist site, a pilgrimage site. There's still some tension around that. But it's an amazing 
place to visit, this enormous stupa that towers up into the sky. And it's just filled with pilgrims perambulating around the stupa from all of the Buddhist countries of the world, from Thailand and Sri Lanka and uh, um, Taiwan and Singapore, uh, Tibet, all the parts of Asia, and a lot of Westerners, of course. Our time in Bodhgaya was especially enhanced because we had uh, been given a connection to a couple of people who lived in Bodhgaya through a friend of ours. He had met them on one of his previous trips, and they were um, convert Buddhists, so they were more recent. They weren't bought because Buddhism still really isn't very active in, Buddha, in, in India. So they had been um, converted to Buddhism, lovely people, both school teachers, and they took us out on a trip actually to see what's called the Pragbodhi Cave, which is the cave where the Buddha did a lot of his ascetic practices. It's a little hard to find, and we had a day with them. And then they were really insistent that we visit their home, which is a very simple affair, and we sat where they entertained, where we sat was on their bed. Their bedroom was their room that they lived in, and they really wanted to make us dinner, and we were kind of demurring, didn't want to trouble them, but they said, no, no, no. Really, can we make you dinner? It was getting around 5 or 6 o'clock, and they said, well, when do you usually eat? And we said, well, you know, early. We go to bed early, get up at 6.30. And they said, well, they, we, they conferred between them, Usha and uh, Rajesh. Could they make dinner? We knew that's what they were discussing. And finally they said, yes, we'll make you dinner. And Usha went off, and I said, can I help? She said, no, no, no. And we hear all this noise and clattering. And, and finally, sometime later, she comes in with these two beautiful talis, these silver plates of curries and puris and one for me and one for Guy and we're just sitting on the bed and we're kind of waiting till she goes out and brings in one for Rajesh and one for her and nothing is happening they're just sitting looking at us so I said where's your food and they said oh we don't eat until eight (laughs) so they'd made this whole beautiful meal just for us it was just so touching and just to feel that generosity of spirit and again, when you're on a journey, you, you are held in generosity. As much as there are challenges, I also saw how many times I was supported by people, there was friendliness or kindness, people offered things, even as simple as directions, even if they weren't always great directions, but <laughs> people always happy and wanting to offer and to help. And to really, again, feel that as you practice here, that the directions, the support, the generosity that's holding you in your practice really is central to, to this unfolding. And the last thing that really um, deepened in my journey, the pilgrimage that we undertook, was a sense of faith. I have faith in the Buddha, have faith in the Dharma, it's un- unquestioning. But this was a different kind of faith. It was a more personal faith And it was really inspired by seeing all these other pilgrims who had a relationship to these sites that I know I didn't have. I just saw people weeping as they were there in front of the Bodhi tree or um, a kuti where the Buddha had lived or taught. And you get a contact high, and it really enlivened my sense of faith in being part of this lineage. Many of you have that faith, I know. You're old practitioners, you've been on many retreats, but some of you are fairly new to practice. To really feel the support that this Sangha gives you, that there is this expression of faith 
in every step we take, in every sitting that we come to, in every walking period that we do diligently. We're expressing that faith. And it could be faith in many different things, faith in awakening, faith in mindfulness, faith in our own capacity. But feel how powerful that is and how we're held, that this whole place is an expression of faith and trust. And it's a great support for the practice. One, one of the pla- I have to mention this too. One of the places I really loved was Anattapindika's Park. whole long story about that, which I won't tell. But the Buddha spent it's a beautiful grove, a beautiful park that's been maintained and, and actually rehabilitated. So it's quite lovely. And the Buddha spent about 25 rains retreats there. It was where he gave most of his discourses because he was there so many times. And so there's a beautiful kuti there called the fragrant kuti because people made so many offerings, it always smelled beautiful. And right outside was the Buddha's walking path. And it actually became a, a stupa or they built a temple there. But it's known that's where the Buddha did his walking meditation. And I just love that. The Buddha was fully enlightened, yet it seems that every day he he did walking meditation. He didn't stop practicing. He didn't stop um, developing this sense of continuity of mindfulness. This uh, pilgrimage group that we uh, connected with to make our uh, bookings does pilgrimages called In the Footsteps of the Buddha. And there was, I tell you, there was something powerful about walking in the place where the Buddha walked. Unfortunately, it's cement there now. It's not literally, but I walked on the grass next to it. I felt that was more close to where he might have actually walked. Next time you're doing walking meditation, imagine the Buddha walking next to you or that you're walking in his footsteps. kind of changes, ups the ante a little, doesn't it? That I, I just love that, that he continued to do walking meditation after his enlightenment. We can continue to do it here in our practice. So this theme of, of journey, of, of cultivation, um, again, became so clear to me looking at the life of the Buddha. And often in the suttas, it, it'll say, and then the Buddha journeyed from so-and-so to so-and-so. And you know how he got there. He walked. He walked for days. He often walked for weeks to get from one place to another. Well, it's another similarity. You've all handed out away your car keys for this time. Anywhere you're going, you're walking. Not quite as far as he was walking, but just that sense of being in your bodies and walking to go wherever you need to go. It can actually feel a little strange get into a car at the end of a retreat, because you've been in this slow pace. It's one of the delights of being on retreat, is just slowing down to this kind of, of, of pace. And so, as I said, I want to talk about this central teaching that the Buddha described as a path, the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path. I've always loved this teaching because in, as the, at the heart of this powerful pointing towards freedom that is the Four Noble Truths, that there's suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering. How to get to the end of suffering isn't, you know, have ecstatic meditation experiences or, you know, head off into bliss or see all your past lives. It talks about 
how we live our lives. It talks about sila. It talks about wise speech. Yes, it includes meditation. It includes developing wisdom. But it includes the very simple things that make up a life, that the Buddha knew that that was central. And for us as lay people, I think it's even more important. And I also love that it's described as a path, but it's usually depicted as a circle. And the classic thing of a circle is no beginning or end. There's no right way to start that path. There's no end to it. Just as I said, the Buddha still did walking meditation even after his enlightenment. So we get this sense of ever deepening but not coming to an end of this journey. That even with enlightenment, there's still this, this development, there's still this expression, I should say, of the enlightened mind through these practices of the Eightfold Path. The shorthand for this path um, is usually talked of as three parts, the three baskets, trip, um, sila, samadhi, panya, ethical conduct, and meditation practice, and wisdom. And I just want to go briefly into all of these and to how they um, are important for us here on the retreat. So it begins with sila. In this, again, the circle, it doesn't say where to start, but in this depiction of it, it starts with sila, ethical conduct. It's what we began the retreat with, Carol talked about on our opening night. But I really don't want to let us have the impression that, you know, we we think about sila a little bit at the beginning of the retreat, maybe we talk about it at the end and then in the middle or when once we go home, you don't really think about it. It's central. It's right there in the Eightfold Path. It was a, a teaching that the Buddha gave again and again and again because sila, because ethical conduct, gives the gift of fearlessness. As we act in harmony with ourselves and other beings, as we act with kindness, as we don't harm other beings, as we, we don't take what's not given, we give what's called the gift of fearlessness to others, and we give the gift of freedom from remorse to ourselves. These are great gifts to have on retreat. When I talked about earlier in the hero's journey being given gifts, we can give ourselves the gift of freedom from remorse, and give others the gift of freedom from fear, the gift of fearlessness, through living in this ethical way, through living out of a sense of valuing life. It's called ahimsa, non-harming, and it's this core of the, this way of living, of living so that we're in alliance, in harmony with all beings. And I often mention this, but I think it's important to notice that because so many people have lived and practiced here for extended periods, living this life of ahimsa, the animals at Spirit Rock are different. You know, I'm sure you've noticed that. I don't know how much they're around yet. Sometimes they come away. The turkeys aren't around so much. They come and go. But when they're here, you have to shoo them out of the way. I mean, they, they are literally just taking over the place. The deer will kind of move aside if you walk by, but they don't run away. And if you ever want a treat, and it's the right time of year, go down to the meadow where the offices are just before sunset. And we call it the deer park because usually there's a herd of deer of old ages, especially when the fawns are born, and the turkeys are there. And there's often 20 or 30 deer and turkeys just hanging out there. 
And again, you walk by, they'll look at you, but they'll just hang out. They do it every evening, in, usually in the springtime, in the summer. It has an effect, this life of harmlessness, of, of caring about others. And he, the Buddha included in this list wise speech. I always say that we could take up a practice of learning wise or mindful speech and it could be our sole practice for the rest of our lives and it would be a great thing to do. Because it's through our speech that we often cause the most suffering and experience the most suffering. Where we, we say things we don't mean or we, we speak out of anger or we get hurt ourselves. So bringing mindfulness to speech is so essential. Here we have a big head start on that. It's called noble silence. But even within that, there's a lot of ways in which we can still find ourselves getting into trouble, whether it's, it's through speaking, through communication. And so it's why we you know, ask that you really honor the noble silence in, 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 in the letter and in the spirit. So that means not writing notes to each other. It often seems like someone else really needs some direction as to how to be in the hall or do their yogi job or whatever it might be. Please restrain yourself. If there's something that needs to be communicated, let the managers know or let us know and we can deal with it as seems appropriate. But it can really be disturbing if you're in your practice and you find on your cushion a little note, then they're always signed with metta, but they're often not (laughs) truly written in a spirit of metta. So best to restrain that, really to let everyone here have their own unique and individual experience. It's such a gift we give each other. So in in the ways we're sharing our experience here, to really allow that. Remember my friend Kamala, and, uh, and it's not just, you know, external expressions of speaking or writing, to really be aware of your own internal speech. And again, we'll probably speak about this more because... It's so common for us to be our own worst critics, that we speak to ourselves internally with a level of harshness we would never say to another human being. And our awareness of that, our bringing compassion and mindfulness to that, can be a big part of healing that tendency. A friend of mine, uh, Kamala, another teacher, says how she went to her teacher Upandita once and just complained about how how many thoughts she was having, how active her mind was. And he just said, what are you doing? This is meant to be a silent retreat. Stop thinking. I wish it were that easy. But working with the mind and our thoughts, it's not to make them the enemy, but really bringing a sense of of interest and um, clarity to them can change the relationship we have. And especially around this area of harsh or critical judging speech towards ourselves and others. The next in this area of sila, of ethical conduct, is right livelihood. And again, to me, it it seems unusual that the Buddha, who was such a renunciate, who was often speaking to his fellow renunciates, fellow monks and nuns, included right livelihood as an essential, important aspect of this path that we're on, as his practice of awakening. And he, but he often described the practice of a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni and a, a, a that term 
literally means or simply means someone who's given up um, uh, the busyness of, of daily life and is practicing sincerely. So that's, we can include ourselves in that. That this, what we're doing here on retreat, is right livelihood. It's the essence of right livelihood. There are other things he talked about that were much more appropriate to lay life, like not dealing in weapons or poisons or intoxicants, etc. But really to see that what we're doing here is the best form of livelihood. Mightn't be paying you very much, but as a, as a way to live your life, really quite profound and beautiful. But there is an aspect to our life here that is, is a form of livelihood that we do need to bring particular attention to. And that's our yogi job. I talked the other day about um, working or bringing mindfulness to the whole area of eating and being in the dining room and how complex and challenging an experience that can be for a lot of us. Often the the most uh, complex thing we do in a day. Well, the work meditation is the other place that we can be challenged, that we can actually often let go of our mindfulness for one reason or another. For, from uh, a sense of you know, our A-type personalities wanting to get in there and be the best yogi ever and have the cleanest bathroom or the, the best you know, cut vegetables or whatever it is you're doing, or just a sense of wanting to get it done and get it over with so I can get back to the real practice, so I can get back to meditating. Whatever reason, we t- can tend to rush through and not be fully present. Or we can find that we get caught up in um, relationship issues if, we're, if you're working with other people. And, you know, it happens on retreat. It's challenging to work in a group of people in silence. And you're doing mime and sign language to get things communicated. And, you know, some people sometimes want to take charge and think they know how things should be done. And other people feel pushed around. We've, believe me, all of these dynamics happen on retreat. Really, it's a place to practice. It's a place to, it's, it, it, it needs your mindfulness. And not just mindfulness of your physical activity, not just mindfulness of sweeping or washing or moving or whatever. Mindfulness of the mind. Be aware of what attitudes you're bringing to your work meditation. Is there resentment or frustration? Is there a sense of rushing to get through it? Are you sort of enjoying the, the, the complexity of it and kind of getting caught up in how you'll just make it all work so smoothly and easily and improve it? You know, if I do this tomorrow in this way, it'll get better. Just really be aware of how you're relating to it. What's your energy like when you finish your work meditation? Do you feel all kind of jazzed up or do you feel kind of depleted? See if you can bring a sense of balance into that practice just as we need to do in the rest of our time here. So it actually becomes part of the practice and not something separate. And it is, again, a gift that you're giving the community. All of the things that you are doing, the retreat couldn't happen in the same way, certainly not for the same cost, if you weren't doing all of these jobs. So it's important to really bring the mindfulness in and, again, to uh, emphasize not just to the activity but to the mind to the state of mind before the work meditation, during it, and after it. So helpful, so important, especially for the continuity that we've often been talking about. So that's the sila section. The next section 
Sila Samadhi Panya. Samadhi is the meditation section. Now that's obvious, this is what we're doing here, meditation. But the Buddha divided it up into three different aspects of meditation. The first he called wise effort. And this is the effort, not so much of energy, of pushing or doing, but the effort that it takes to recognize when the mind is caught in unwholesome or unskillful states or experiences and being willing to let those go, abandon them, let them diminish, and the willingness or the interest in noticing when beautiful states, skillful states are present of calm or tranquility or joy or rapture or equanimity and doing what we do to allow those to develop, to strengthen. This, we might give a whole talk on this because it's so central, but this practice of letting go of the unwholesome, cultivating the wholesome, is the central part of our practice, is what we should be paying attention to over and over and over again. Really important to see that our practice of mindfulness isn't a passive practice. We can often have the idea, the delusion that, you know, basically all we need to do is plop down and it's just like a movie is playing in front of us. And all we need, you know, is anger and aversion and now I'm tired and now I'm sleepy. The mindfulness is key. Yes, we have to know that that's happening. But we don't just sit, sit like a lump on a log and let that all flow by. We engage with it. We recognize when the mind is really caught, and not out of aversion of pushing away, but bringing skillful means. We, we um, bring whatever antidotes or balancing, just the mindfulness itself is often enough if it's engaged and interested and connected. But if it isn't, we need to engage with our practice. We need to be connected to what's happening. So there is this sense of cultivation that's happening, this willingness to let go, to see when we're going down the dead ends that we've been so many times before, to see that we're often choosing to go down those dead ends and that we can make different choices. Really important to get this active part of practice. We'll talk about it again and again and again. This is part of this willingness to be transformed that's part of the hero's journey this willingness to change, this willingness to see that certain habits of mind aren't skillful, aren't helpful, may have served us in the past but don't serve us any longer, willingness to let go of those. So we work actively with our meditation, finding that balance. Mindfulness is always key, but we, we bring with that the wisdom, and this is where the mindfulness becomes what Buddhadasa would call satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. Mindfulness has a wisdom inherent in it. You can often see it when you recognize, oh, this is what's happening. There often is, just with that, a letting go, a release, or even an appreciation. Oh, this is gratitude, or this is joy. Mindfulness itself has that potential. Only if, though, we really connect with things. Larry Rosenberg, in his book, Breath by Breath, has these great descriptions of mindfulness and its power. Mindfulness is often, he says, mindfulness is often likened to a mirror. It simply reflects what is there. It is not a process of thinking. It is preconceptual before thought. 
The only time that mindfulness can happen is in the present moment. If you are thinking of the past, that is memory. Mindfulness is unbiased. It is not for or against anything. Mindfulness has no goal other than the seeing itself. It isn't detached. It is a form of participation. One word that I personally have come to associate with mindful living is intimacy. The great 13th century Japanese Zen teacher Dogen was once asked, what is the awakened mind? And he answered, the mind that is intimate with all things, intimate with all things. The task of mindfulness is to be intimate with the experience. With this intimacy, the wisdom is naturally there with this relaxed, interested, accepting mindfulness. The balance comes. But we don't just be willing to be there in that intimacy and see what's truly present, see what's really there. One of my teachers, Utejaniya, says this. It's, it's, it's actually the title of a book. Awareness alone is not enough. He says, the real value of meditation is not in getting results like bliss and peace, however enjoyable they may be. The real value of meditation is the actual process of being aware and understanding what is happening. The process is important, not the result. Instead of complaining about what it is or is not happening, you should appreciate that you are aware, regardless of what you are aware of, and learn from it. But awareness alone is not enough. Having a desire to really understand what is going on is much more important than just trying to be aware. We practice mindfulness because we want to understand. So this sati panya, mindfulness wisdom, get curious about your experience, be interested in it, and then the wisdom will actually come. And the samadhi, the concentration, will actually also deepen out of that. When I talk about samadhi in this context, um, the Buddha (coughs) would often describe samadhi, and we translate that as concentration, as what he called the four jhanas, or absorptions, these states of deep concentration. But there's actually a a whole debate that's still going on to this day, whether jhana, whether absorption is essential, can't do it without it, or irrelevant. We tend to strike a middle way with that. I think jhana and deep concentration can be enormously helpful, but for the practice that we're doing here, all we need is enough concentration, enough steadiness of mind to see clearly what's happening. And when I translate samadhi as concentration, I don't uh, mean in the way that we often think of it as this kind of narrowness of mind or or, um, uh, rigidity of focus. Samadhi actually means more unification of mind, wholeness of mind, steadiness of mind, non-distraction. That, these are the qualities of samadhi that we want to cultivate. And we can do that through what we call kanika samadhi, moment-to-moment samadhi, this continuity that we've been talking about. Just enough samadhi to know what's happening, to see clearly, to stay present, and to stay present for the next moment and the next moment, and the next moment. This deepening naturally leads to wisdom, whether it's this direct knowing, this direct connecting, 
or the deepest wisdom. In the Eightfold Path, the wisdom is described as right view, which is, again, in its circular, right view, which is part of the Eightfold Path, which is part of the Four Noble Truths, is knowing the Four Noble Truths, knowing suffering and the cause of suffering. It's knowing the truth of the causal nature of things. It's knowing impermanence. It's knowing all of these things that the Buddha kept pointing towards. Basically, it's aligning our understanding with the Dhamma, with the truth of things. It's that deep uh, knowing of and trust in how things are, and that, that our mindfulness will keep bringing us back to that deep knowing. And the next part of the wisdom basket is right intention. And again, it's just a beautiful flow from this knowing of suffering and the ending of suffering. Right intention is compassion, right? The intention towards non-harming, towards goodwill, and towards renunciation. So again, there are all of these circular feedback loops in this beautiful description of our path and our journey that wisdom naturally leads to compassion and naturally leads to metta, naturally leads to letting go. And we come back to intention, where we began the opening night of our retreat. What, what brought you here? What was your intention? It's only by clarifying our intention that the journey will begin, that we'll keep taking step after step. We don't have to have, as I said, a, a, a set goal in mind. In fact, that, you know, apart from an aspiration to have a rigidity of goal is not that helpful. But to have the aspiration or the intention to greater freedom, to deeper wisdom, to more happiness, this we can know, this we can trust, this is important. And even though we're on a journey, the only place that we wake up is now. And so to constantly be um, sensitive to, alive to this paradox, one of the many paradoxes in our spiritual practice, that yes, there's cultivation, but awakening, enlightenment, insight, letting go, freedom happens now, happens in this moment. What happened yesterday is gone. The future isn't here yet. To be in this moment is our practice, and the only place we'll wake up. So we can't keep looking ahead, wondering what will happen. We need to be here now, as they say, and wake up and trust this direct, simple knowing of our experience. If we can stay present for that, it will reveal to us what we need to know. We start to have faith, trust ourselves, trust the practice, trust mindfulness. And as uh, T.S. Eliot said so beautifully, we shall not cease from our exploration and at the end of all our exploring, we'll be, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So where it leads is back here, really back home and we know it for the first time because we're there in this profound, complete, accepting, open way. So at the end of the talks, we just like to let the words settle into silence. You don't have to change your posture. 
You can just close your eyes, get comfortable if you need to, but we'll just sit for a moment or two in silence. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Thank you for your attention. Have about 35 minutes for walking meditation and then we'll have our last sit of the day with chanting at the end and again we'll make it just a little bit shorter you know work up to the full period so please join us if you have the energy thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate